Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Good evening, everyone. I'm Allison Camerata. Welcome to CNN Tonight on a big news night. The Supreme Court handing down a decision that's being described as a generational shift that will alter the way colleges and universities have operated for decades. The conservative majority court overturned affirmative action, the longstanding precedent designed to help level the playing field for black and Hispanic students. Tonight, we'll speak to lawyers and students directly involved in this landmark decision. Plus, another member of Donald Trump's inner circle is talking to the special counsel's investigators. Sources tell CNN that Susie Wiles, a top campaign aide, was shown a classified map relating to a military operation by Trump during a meeting at Bedminster in the summer of 2021. This is yet another incident of Trump showing off secret information separate and apart from that damning audio tape that CNN obtained. We're also learning another former Trump campaign official is cooperating with the special counsel. So we have much more on that ahead. And a stunning verdict in the trial of Scott Peterson. He's the ex-school resource officer who stayed outside during the school shooting at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas in Parkland, Florida. 17 people died that day, including 14 students. We, the jury, find as follows as to the defendant in this case. The defendant is not guilty. So say we all this 29th day of June 2023 at Fort Lauderdale, Broward County, Florida. Okay, we'll be covering that story later in the program, but let's begin with the Supreme Court's landmark decision on affirmative action, ruling that colleges and universities can no longer take race into consideration for granting admission. Here to help us understand what this means for students, for colleges, for the country, our chief legal analyst, Laura Coates. Laura, great to see you. So how will this, let's start with college admissions, okay? How will this change college admissions? Well, remember, in a series of cases, we already knew there could not be quotas. There could not be the so-called plus factor that you would assign to race in the overall application and admission process. The real question for the court now is whether race could be considered part of a holistic review of an application akin to what you do for, say, a cellist or maybe an athlete or a legacy student or a donor's child or perhaps a veteran, any number of factors. What the court decided today was that, no, you cannot use race as a part of even a holistic process. They believe in the majority. The 14th Amendment says we do not want to look at race at all as either a detriment or an advantage. We should be kind of a colorblind society as it relates to race. Now, we can all quibble about whether that, in fact, is a genuine argument or disingenuous, but the majority holding found just that. And as a result, they're saying you cannot use race as a factor. But of course, Allison, the the issue here is that there is a line in the holding that says this does not mean that you cannot accept or have a student who's discussing race, and I'm paraphrasing here, and say a college admissions essay. So now it creates quite the conundrum. As an admissions officer, I can't look at race 
but yet a student might be able to describe one's identity, one's experience as a member of a particular race, am I to throw away that application in some form or fashion or disregard that particular aspect of it, or what shall I do? The dissent, of course, gave a very fiery response about the fact that they do not believe we are in a colorblind or race-blind society and that it is a means of course correction that still very much is needed. I find the college essay component to this, as you described, so confusing. Having had two seniors who've just gone through this, the college essay is about your lived experience, or it's supposed to be, you know, to shed light on who you really are beyond your test scores. And so the, what, what Justice Roberts said about it, he, I'll just read it to everyone. He says, nothing in this opinion should be construed as prohibiting universities from considering an applicant's discussion of how race affected his or her life, be it through discrimination, inspiration, or otherwise. But despite the dissent's assertion to the contrary, universities may not simply establish through application essays or other means the regime we hold unlawful today. What cannot be done directly mm. cannot be done indirectly. It is confusing, Laura. It can be. And you look, think about how do I really actually carry this out without either offending the, the ruling or the Constitution as the majority is holding here. But remember, when people are talking about affirmative action, there seems to be a very growing trend where people are talking about one thing or another, but never quite how affirmative action actually worked. I mean, the president of the United States actually alluded to today in his own speech. It's not that you begin with race of an applicant and then decide whether they're qualified at that moment. It's about the qualifications of the actual applicant, whether they are already otherwise qualified on a merit-based and albeit subjective set of criterion. And then race is often used in terms of the admissions process as it was articulated in the arguments before the court in briefings and amicus briefs and beyond as a way of looking at similarly, perhaps situated students or those who have maybe similar test scores, particularly similar geographic reasons or other things. And then to what extent one applicant can contribute to the admissions criteria vision of the campus versus the other. That's usually how it's been looked at. And so this notion that race is the predominant and driving factor to decide who is first qualified is actually not an accurate assessment. But even so, the Supreme Court has said, Race cannot be a part of the admissions criteria and factor, and that is going to lead to some uncertainty, but more likely, Allison, a lot of litigation now about whether it's being followed by individual schools, probably the reason President Biden's administration now wants to provide some kind of guidance ahead of an upcoming fall semester. Okay, we're going to get into those very issues right now, Laura. Thank you very much. Let's bring in Harvard law professor Randall Kennedy. He's the author of For Discrimination, Race, Affirmative Action, and the Law. Also former Deputy Assistant Attorney General Harry Littman. Great to see both of you gentlemen. Okay, Professor, put this in practical terms for us. What does this mean for Harvard? How will it change Harvard's admission process? Well, it'll certainly um, prompt Harvard to be more limited in what Harvard has already been doing and what all the universities, all selective universities, have been doing with affirmative action. It's clear that the court has uh, cut back on the, or in fact, dismantled, invalidated the so-called diversity rationale for affirmative action. But as you and your colleagues stated at the outset of the program, uh, after that, 
the, um, the opinion is rather opaque. It's very unclear as to the extent to which race can be taken into account. In the last two paragraphs of the court's opinion, it said expressly that uh, race can, in fact, be taken into account. It seems that it's going to be very, you have to take into account in a very limited way, a retail way, a way that is directly limited to a particular applicant. But it seems to me that there's plenty of room in this opinion to still take race into account. Hmm. Okay. Um, Harry, I want to talk about the dissenting opinions because they have been described today as scathing. I'll read one of them. Uh, It's uh, from Justice uh, Katanji Brown-Jackson. With let them eat cake obliviousness today, the majority pulls the ripcord and announces colorblindness for all by legal fiat. That's her dissent in the UNC case, quote, but deeming race irrelevant in law does not make it so in life. Is that dissent, level of dissent, unusual? Oh, for sure. And there was, she didn't read her dissent from the, the bench, but the other one, Sotomayor, did, as did Roberts. And But you get to the core there, um, Allison, because last year's blockbuster decision, also a wrecking ball of a uh, that demolishes many years of precedent was a was a fight about the meaning of a single case. This d- revealed a divide, not just about the meaning of the law, not just about the meaning of a case, but about worldviews. And so what the ultimate uh, criticism that the dissent is leveling is you do not understand the world, your sort of blithe principle that the way to end discrimination is ending all racial discrimination is is superficial in a word. And you just uh, the, it has to be you have to take inequality into account in order to achieve equality. And that position, as the professor says, is going to be lit and Laura is going to be litigated in fine uh, grain for years, probably. And to the extent the court has the suggestion that we've put an end to this, it, it will find uh, it very much otherwise, I think. So, Professor, as you well know, one of the precedents for affirmative action standing was this 2003 case, Grutter versus Bollinger, in which the Supreme Court ruled that colleges could consider race to achieve educational diversity. Mm-hmm. And writing from the majority in that case, Justice Sandra Day O'Connor said she expected, quote, 25 years from now, meaning the year 2028, that use of racial preferences will no longer be necessary, end quote. So, of course, that has not happened yet. So did affirmative action work at Harvard the way it was intended and beyond? I think affirmative action has been working in the sense that it has helped to uh, desegregate the upper echelons of American society, including selective universities. I think affirmative action, to a very large extent, has been a positive force in American life and uh, a success story in American life. And I think that's one of the reasons why uh, many people are very disappointed and very angry, in fact, at what the Supreme Court uh, has done. Harry, I know you just alluded to this, but in the minute that we have left, can you just explain yeah. how this is going to put uh, you know, colleges and universities into this legal quagmire? Yeah, I mean, the truth is we don't know, but that little excerpt you read at the end, Allison, uh, you're going to have now a cottage industry. It's ironic of people writing essays mm. stressing their the unidimensional racial identity uh, with the exact thing the court doesn't want. But any manner of stratagems, because the bottom line 
Harvard and selective universities cannot return, will not return to a 1950s sort of Ozzy and Harriet world. That, that They will do what is necessary to make that not happen. Hmm. Uh, Professor Randall Kennedy, Harry Lippman, thank you both very much for your expertise. Thank you. Thank you, Professor. Thank you. Next, I'll speak with two students involved in today's decision who disagree on whether affirmative action helped or hurt them. The Supreme Court today rejecting race-based affirmative action in college admissions. So let's talk to students on both sides of this issue. First, we have Madison Trice. She's a Harvard graduate who testified in the Harvard admissions case. Uh, Madison, thanks so much for being here. I know how incredibly personal this decision is to you because you testified at trial about your experience of being a black student at Harvard. So tell us your reaction to the decision. Ooh, um, first of all, thank you so much for having me. Um, I was talking to a family member today about how I've had about five years to prepare for this decision with the expectation that it would come down this way. And I'm still so sad. I'm still pretty heartbroken about it. Um, When I think about the ways that my experience would have been limited had I not had the opportunity to be around a diverse student body, when I think about the losses that future black and brown students will face, looking forward. um, It's just pretty heartbreaking to me. Yeah. Let me um, try to share with you some of uh, Justice Clarence Thomas's logic (laughs) in doing it. He said he wanted to end affirmative action, and he wrote from the majority opinion that today's youth, quote, should not shoulder the moral debts of their ancestors. He also said that racialism simply cannot be undone by different or more racialism. So what do you think of his logic? I think that logic is... um, at a very basic level, disingenuous. And I think that he's aware of that because he's made it his mission to dismantle affirmative action or holistic admissions for quite some time. Um, But I know personally that it is not racialism. It is not additional discrimination. The way that the school I attended was allowed to consider my race was actually a proxy for considering the discrimination and oppression that I had faced on my way to Harvard. I know that there was a lot of additional labor that I had to do, whether it was in terms of reinventing the wheel and teaching myself certain things that other students were learning by being in all white study groups or trying to um, uplift, you know, different ways of learning and tutoring younger students so that they wouldn't have to go through what I went through to ensure that they would have opportunities, particularly black and brown students at my high school, or even just the struggles of trying to convince teachers to allow me to hold clubs or to allow me to partake in certain opportunities that I was denied and non-Black students were not denied. All of those things happened to me. And on top of that, I know that I had to balance the concurrent responsibilities of being one of the only Black students in my classes a lot of the time and representing my whole community and being held to task for that. And in doing all of that, I still had to get grades that were good enough for Harvard to see me. Um, Being able to consider my race and my story is how I believe Harvard was able to see me without overlooking me. And I think um, any judgment that does not take that into account is pretty thinly veiled as an attempt to ensure that um, there is less diversity in college campuses. 
Well, that's all really interesting to hear, Madison, because we're about to speak to a student from the group that launched this lawsuit. And he says that Asian Americans were denied admission to Harvard, as you know, though they had stellar grades as well, simply because they checked the box that said Asian. So what do you say to the people who believe that Asian students have gotten the raw end of affirmative action? I think that my perspective would be that Asian Americans are also students of color. They're not exempt from discrimination. Um, being able to check a box that says, hey, this is my race, allows you to imply that you've experienced racial discrimination for that experience, allows people to take into account ways that other people might have been biased towards you with regards to your background, whether that was in the interview process or in terms of teachers and administrators. And Asian American students also benefit from affirmative action. Um, also benefit from holistic admissions. And it's been demonstrated that um, certain Asian American student groups will actually see a decrease in rates of attendance um, under groups that are already underrepresented um, if they don't have the opportunity to articulate the fullness of their story. Mostly, though, I can speak to my experience and say that I know it was important for the diversity of the student body. And you've done that uh, tonight. Madison Trice, thank you very much for sharing your reactions to this, as we've said, very personal decision for you. Uh, We appreciate you being here. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Okay, now let's go to Calvin Yang. He's the member of the Students for Fair Admissions group that sued Harvard and UNC to end affirmative action. Calvin, thanks so much for being here. So I know you just listened to that interview that we did. So what is your response to the win for your group today? First of all, Good evening, and thank you so much for having me, Allison. I think today's decision marks a pretty landmark win for the rights of Asian Americans in this country. Because for so long, I think there's this misconception associated with Asian Americans that we're the model minority, that we work hard, keep our heads down, and do not really participate in a lot of you know, actions concerning standing up for our own rights. So today is a direct testament against that. And for that, I am both very relieved and very happy. But what about what Madison was saying, basically, which is that, um, yes, Asian Americans do represent people of color and a particular minority, and so do blacks. And I mean, I think that her point was sort of that you should be on the same side. You should all be sort of fighting for the same thing, and that is to be seen and to have your life experience recognized in college admissions. Well, if you look at the statistics here about affirmative action, um, it goes to show that, first of all, Asian applicants were routinely marked down because of arbitrary factors like personality, likability, and leadership, which has no quantifiable measure to measure those, you know, specific attributes. And because of that, um, despite having average or higher than average ratings on the all the other factors that Harvard looks at, Asian Americans have a lower chance of getting in to Harvard because of this. Mm. So in that sense, it goes to show that despite affirmative action being a very well-intentioned idea, its execution and reality is rather poor. But what about this stat, Calvin? So um, part of your lawsuit, as you just said, was that Asian Americans were being disadvantaged by uh, affirmative action. But 28% of admitted students at Harvard in 2022 were Asian. That's up from 20% in 2013. So how were they being disadvantaged? Well, if you look at it this way, um, so Asian Americans uh, scored 
Asian, Asian American applicants tend to score higher uh, on standardized testing than all the other ethnic groups and also on par in terms of extracurricular activities and all the other attributes that Harvard looks at in terms of assessing its applicants. And that's why I think it's still understandable that there's a high percentage of Asian American applicants and Asian American students who end up enrolling at Harvard College. But at the same time, Asian Americans who have the grades, who, ha- who meet the benchmark, the academic benchmark, or extracurricular, or all the other things that Harvard looks at, get, still get marked down because of personality. So again, it's an unfortunate reality, and I'm, again, very happy that today's ruling helped you address that. So President Biden today said he's concerned that this ruling will make social and economic inequality worse. Can you be sure that it won't? So, again, I think that moving on from today, uh, policymakers from all across this country need to explore alternatives. Alternatives that are both race neutral, but also factor in the nuanced situation that this country is facing. For example, racial inequality and income inequality. For me personally, I'm a strong believer and proponent of a socioeconomic based admission system where applicants, no matter where their ethnic group is, if they come from disadvantaged backgrounds, they should be given more of a boost at uh, these elite colleges in terms of admissions. So in that way, I think it definitely will help to even address a lot of the issues that the country is facing today. Um, Calvin Yang, thank you very much for your time tonight. Uh, really interesting to hear both perspectives on this landmark decision. Thanks Thank you for, for being having here. me. Okay, more Trump insiders are speaking to investigators now. Who are they and what do they know? That's next. Several developments tonight in the legal cases facing Donald Trump. Sources tell CNN that a top Trump campaign aide has spoken multiple times to investigators looking into the mishandling of classified documents. And we're learning a former Trump campaign official is cooperating with the special counsel's investigation into 2020 election interference. So joining me now is CNN senior legal affairs correspondent Paula Reed and CNN legal analyst Jennifer Rogers. Ladies, great to see you. Okay, Paula, let's start with the classified documents. So tell us about this campaign aide, Susie Wiles. So Susie Wiles is one of Trump's closest aides. She's effectively running his third campaign for the White House. And a source tells CNN that she is the representative of Trump's political action committee that the special counsel alleges he showed a classified map to. Now, this is one of the most shocking things in the indictment, that allegedly he showed a classified map to someone who worked for his PAC. Now, of course, it's shocking that he would share classified documents with someone who doesn't have a clearance. But the other question that this raised is, how did they know about this? Was this someone that, you know, in his inner circle who revealed this to investigators? Or do they know this from someone else? Now, we know Wiles spoke with investigators multiple times. She was asked about it, but it's not clear she is the one who gave this information to prosecutors. We're told that the the Trump team, that they were blindsided uh, by this news today. But as of now, there are no plans for Wiles to step back from her campaign role. Okay, that's really interesting. Now, Paula, turn to the investigation into the 2020 election interference. (laughs) Who is that former campaign official who we understand is cooperating with the special counsel? Well, Mike Roman is a campaign official who is now cooperating in the special counsel's investigation. It's interesting because we know he was subpoenaed, his cell phone was seized, 
as part of the investigation into efforts to allegedly put forth a slate of fake electors. That plot has been something that the investigators have really been focused on recently. And Allison, this all comes as we're seeing an uptick in activity in the January 6th investigation. We've seen a flurry of new witnesses, including Rudy Giuliani and some other high-profile folks. So it does appear that Jack Smith could be reaching a charging decision on that case soon. Okay, Jen, um, as we say so often on this program, it's hard sometimes to keep track of all of these, (laughs) but not for you. Is there a pecking order of how these things will unfold? Which one should or will go first that we should be prepared for? Uh, Well, not really. I mean, as you do an investigation, you tend to save the more important people for the end because you're gathering information that you're then going to use to question those people. So that, in a sense, is an order. But, you know, there's so many people working on this investigation, honestly, at the special counsel's office, that there are teams that are working on each of these plots, I think. So it's not like in a normal case where you're having to prioritize, though. I think all of these strands, the fake electors, the pressure campaigns, you know, the, the fraud investigation about the campaign uh, finance part of it, like all of that, I think, is being done by separate teams. So it's all being done. And then there's also the Fulton County investigation into election interference. Do you have a sense of which one, if the federal charges or that one will go first? Well, so we know the timing of Georgia more likely because they, they have said when the grand jury is sitting, right? So from some date in July until I think it's late, late August. So that's a little bit more you know, likely to be in that window. Um, what's really weird here is that DOJ didn't tell them to, to stand down way back in the day when they started investigating a year and a half ago. That would have been the more normal thing to do. But now that they've said go ahead, I think there's going to be a little bit of a dance here. You know, who's going to go first? What's that going to mean for scheduling and all of those things? Okay. Uh, Paula, tell us what the grand jury in Florida is up to, because they already indicted former President Trump, as we know, for the mishandling of the classified documents. So what are they still working on? Well, it's not unusual for a grand jury to continue uh, its work after charges have been filed. We know that there are a lot of outstanding threads in this investigation. For example, we know that investigators were asking about possible gaps in surveillance footage that they were given. Also still some outstanding questions about exactly how these classified materials were stored in Bedminster, New Jersey. So today when our colleague Caitlin Polans reported that this grand jury is still actively uh, seeking information from witnesses, still investigating, it wasn't terribly surprising because it is still possible that they could bring additional charges against someone else or possibly a superseding indictment against former President Trump or his co-defendant, Walt Nada. Gaps in surveillance footage, Jen, that doesn't sound good. So the fact that they're still, are you surprised that the grand jury is still working? Well, I'm not surprised if they're looking at indicting other people. It would be unusual for them to continue to build the case against the former president because once you indict, you're supposed to then get trial subpoenas, actually, not grand jury subpoenas anymore. So I suspect it means that they're actually looking to indict other people with the gaps in surveillance footage may have been some of the tech people who, you know, were supposed to be responsive to the subpoena, that sort of thing. Sure, it could be anything, but I guess that they're trying to figure out what those mean. Um, Okay, so, Paul, in a different development, sources tell us that Biden's Iran envoy has been placed on leave and his security clearance has been suspended for something. So what do we know about this? That's right. This is reporting from our national security team. But it's really interesting because he's been placed on leave without pay. And this occurred after his security clearance was suspended earlier this year. There has been an ongoing investigation into the possible mishandling of classified information. Now, earlier this year, the State Department apparently ramped up its investigation into this envoy and his handling of classified materials. And it's not clear exactly what led his clearance to be suspended. And there's no indication at this point that there's any criminal 
investigation here. But again, the possible mishandling of classified documents seems to be uh, the theme of the past 18 months. Yes, it does. Do you, what do you see here? <laughs> well, of course, we don't know for sure. But I will say this. If you do something inadvertent, they don't, you know, suspend your security clearance and take you out of your position, right? So they're concerned about something. He mishandled in a way that may be intentional. And, you know, it's a good thing, right? You don't want prosecutors to have to be the first instance of learning about something gone awry, right? It's good that the State Department and its investigators figured out something was going wrong here and took him out of that position if they think that he's a danger in that way. Okay. Jennifer, Paula, thank you very much for helping us go through all of these developments. Okay, next, Arizona's former House Speaker is here. He was pressured by Rudy Giuliani and Donald Trump to help overturn Biden's win in that state. We'll check in with him. Sources tell CNN that special counsel investigators are now focusing on the plot to put forward slates of fake electors in seven states that Donald Trump lost in 2020. We're learning tonight that former Trump campaign official Mike Roman is cooperating with prosecutors in that probe. And according to The New York Times, prosecutors have already asked Rudy Giuliani, Trump's former personal attorney, about the fake electors scheme. So let's bring in former Republican Arizona House Speaker Rusty Bowers, who was pressured by Giuliani and Trump to help overturn Biden's win in that state. Mr. Bowers, thanks so much for being here. Thank you. Okay, so can you just remind, I mean, you were pressured by Rudy Giuliani and Trump. And now that this is coming to a head in terms of them, the the investigators having spoken to Rudy Giuliani, can you just remind us of what specifically they asked you to do? Well, first they asked me for a special committee, and I said to what end? And then the committee's job was to find sufficient, to listen to all the claims of uh, fraud, etc., to have doubt. And with that doubt, they could use this, uh, this idea that of, of plenary power for legislatures to throw out the, uh, the Biden electors and put in Trump electors. That's what they were asking me to do. So what do you think Rudy Giuliani will share with investigators about this? Well, I, I understand some of the things he said about our conversation, so I wouldn't know. It would be, it would be a, an interesting conversation I'd love to hear. Uh, so would Especially we all. About, yeah, yeah. So, but, but what has he shared about your conversation? Well, I just remember when he and Trump, uh, I got the email just before testifying to the January 6th committee that I had said that, yes, the, the election was rigged and that he really won and yada, yada, yada. And I obviously that didn't happen. And I said some. And, and uh, I've heard Giuliani had made similar statements about things, but he, he, he's more careful because he talked to a lot more people uh, in, in our state. I mean, and a lot of people at the same time in meetings with me. So it, it will be interesting. And I, I just hope he tells the truth. That'd be the best thing. Yeah. We've also learned that former Trump 2020 campaign official Mike Roman is cooperating with the special counsel. Did you ever interact with him? I never did interact with Roman. Mine was with Boris uh, uh, Epstein. Oh, Boris Epstein, yep. Uh, that was one that I interacted with. And then uh, Ellison and Giuliani in meetings there in Arizona in a meeting. So um, I don't have to tell you, Mr. Bowers, this investigation has gone on for more than two years. What has all of this done to your life and career and watching it come to something of a head now? 
Well, it, all of this uh, effectively ended my political career, which isn't a bad thing. I mean, uh, I, I get to do a little bit of what I like to do and be with my family and pursue other things. And I'm very busy in the water field. But it was very hurtful and harmful to my family, my wife, and our children. Uh, and uh, I just hope that it will end. And I would like to see justice done. But uh, I'm, I'm not on a jihad. I would just like to see justice done. And what would that look like? That would look like the truth. And uh, people to say, either say, yes, we did that. It would be wonderful if they said, I apologize. We, we, we blew it. And, uh, but I don't think that will happen. And, and, but I would like to have a, a justice for everybody. There's all kinds of things happening in the country and, and people are, are really confused and uh, upset. And I would like to see some calm and a, a lessening of contention. I don't know how that happens, but it, maybe it can start with me in my home and we'll, we'll push it from there. Well, we hope that for you. Um, Rusty Bowers, thank you very much for your candor. We always appreciate talking to you. Thank you very much. Okay, a Parkland school resource officer found not guilty today after he stayed outside during the mass shooting inside Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School. Next, I'll speak with the mother of a teacher who died saving students. Scott Peterson, the former school resource officer at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida, was acquitted today by a jury in Florida. Now, you may remember that Peterson was caught on surveillance footage moving away rather than running towards the school during the mass shooting. He was found not guilty of seven counts of felony child neglect, three counts of culpable negligence, and one count of perjury. Peterson and his attorney had an emotional reaction as the verdict was read. State of Florida plaintiff versus Scott Peterson defendant, verdict, count one. We, the jury, find as follows as to the defendant in this case. The defendant is not guilty. So say we all this 29th day of June 2023 at Fort Lauderdale, Broward County, Florida. Verdict. Count two. We, the jury, find as follows as to the defendant in this case. The defendant is not guilty. So say we all this 29th day of June 2023 at Fort Lauderdale, Broward County, Florida. I want to bring in now CNN Chief Law Enforcement and Intelligence Analyst John Miller and also Linda Beagle-Shulman. She's the mother of Scott Beagle, a geography teacher at Parkland, who was killed protecting his students in the shooting. Linda, I always uh, appreciate seeing you, even though it's during often hard days. And so what's your reaction? What's your reaction to the emotional reaction that Scott Peterson had in the courtroom? You know, I guess Scott Peterson believes that uh, doing nothing is synonymous with doing no wrong. I mean, he, he may have um, not have been legally responsible, not found legally responsible, but there's no doubt that he's morally responsible. There's just no doubt about it. And it's hard to have a reaction. I mean, it, it, you become numb after a while. You, you want, you want, you, you know he's guilty, I mean, I, not you, but I, I know he's guilty. He stood there for 40 minutes doing nothing. Had he done something, something, anything, the murderer would have never made it to the third floor. He would have never made it to the third floor. He, all he had to do was divert him 
for 30 seconds. I speak for myself. If he diverted him for 10 seconds, my, my son would have been able to close the door. I mean, Scott did... Scott did what Scott Peterson... My Scott did what Scott Peterson should have done. My Scott protected his students. He saved 31 students, okay, f- from the shooter. Yeah. That's what Scott Peterson should have yes, done. Yes, your son got between the shooter and his students. And as you know, the, that morning, right after it happened, I talked to some of his students who credit your son with saving their lives. That was real. What, what he did was, was real. John, let me just play you what um, Scott Peterson says, that it, it, why he says it wasn't his fault. Listen to this. We've got our life We've back. We've got our life back after four and a half years. Five and a half. Because of Mark. Yep. And being able to put the truth out of what happened. It's, it's been an emotional roller coaster for so long. Nobody ever forget this was a massacre on February 14th. The only person to blame was that monster. It wasn't any law enforcement. Nobody on that scene from BSO, Coral Springs. Everybody did the best they could. We did the best we could with the information we had. And God knows we wish we had more. What, what about that? Um, that it was the shooter's fault. Well, it definitely was the shooter's fault. Um, sometimes in these things, we lose sight of who the ultimate bad guy is. The question here about Scott Peterson's responsibility is, did he hold up to his oath um, as a police officer? And, you know, it's ironic that we're talking about this because last night we were here on this show showing the officer in Allen, Texas, literally running into the gunfire to stop the killing. We saw that same thing in Nashville, in another school. We saw that same thing in Louisville, in a bank where a senior officer and a junior officer, the, the younger of which was terribly wounded with a gunshot to the head as the senior officer then walked back into that field of, of fire and shot him. So when you look at this case or you look at Uvalde, um, you know, you have to ask what went wrong there. And I think what Scott Peterson did at trial Um, is his lawyers were able to present different portions of the radio tape, present the idea that he thought the gunman was outside at that point and not inside, and divert the idea of being guilty of cowardice or forsaking his oath to being guilty of confusion in um, a high-tension situation. You know, what the jury is looking for isn't what can they prove, but is there reasonable doubt about, and this is the hard part, not just reasonable doubt about the evidence, but reasonable doubt about what was in his mind. Mm. Yeah. And so, Linda, is any of this, I mean, it's been years and still these you know, trials are going on. And I know that every single one of them tears a piece of all the victims, families, hearts out. Is it getting easier each day or each year or is it just as raw as that day that we were all together when it first happened? This just pulled the scab right off again. I mean, it doesn't ever get easier. Um, Some days are easier than others. But this just ripped the scab right off. I mean, I I wasn't in the courtroom, but it was certainly on my computer at work, day in and day out, listening to the trial and hearing the medical examiner again talk about, I actually learned something more from the medical examiner about what the bullets did when they entered my son's body and so on and so forth, that I didn't even... I, I didn't even get during the actual trial when the medical examiner was talking. It, it just, 
it, this, the wound doesn't heal, and this is just, it's wrong. It's just wrong. Just like you said, it's just wrong. It takes one juror. That's all. I mean, I'm not faulting the justice system, the legal system, okay? Sometimes it's not quite just. It's a legal system, but sometimes just not quite just. Yeah. Um, understood. And that's horrible. I mean, it's horrible that not only do you have to relive it, but that you you can't even brace yourself for knowing that you're about to hear something horrible that you've never heard before. I, I didn't know that. And and listening to Scott Peterson, you know, after the verdict, when he came out to do his interview, and I believe his words were, I got my life back. Could you give me my son's life back? I mean... What more, what, what more can I say? Linda, thank you very much for being here. We always appreciate talking to you. John, thanks for giving us the law enforcement perspective on this horrible tragedy. All right, we've got much more live coverage ahead of today's major news about the Supreme Court. We'll be right back. The Supreme Court ruling six to three today to end affirmative action in college admissions. This is a decision that's being described as a generational shift that will alter the way colleges and universities have operated for decades. CNN justice correspondent Jessica Schneider has more on today's landmark ruling. The Supreme Court stirring up protests with its decision gutting affirmative action, saying colleges and universities can no longer rely on race in the admissions process. But prospective students are still allowed to talk about how their race has shaped their experiences in their applications. The 6-3 opinion written by Chief Justice John Roberts will now prohibit students from checking a box indicating their race, specifically saying the practice at Harvard and University of North Carolina cannot be reconciled with the guarantees of the the Equal Protection Clause. The majority not explicitly saying they are overruling more than four decades of precedent that allowed affirmative action, but the three liberal justices writing, today this court stands in the way and rolls back decades of precedent and momentous progress. I'm really most worried about, you know, the youth and like um, the students younger than us in high school and middle school and elementary school who might not get the same opportunity that I did. The two cases were brought by the group Students for Fair Admissions, led by activist Edward Bloom, who has fought for nearly a decade to eradicate affirmative action. Classifying students by race and ethnicity, treating them differently because of their race and ethnicity, is it's unfair. At the forefront of the Harvard fight, Asian students who argued they were disadvantaged because Harvard prioritized other minorities and used a personal rating score that did not rank them favorably. The issue is deeply personal to Justice Sonia Sotomayor as the first woman of color on the Supreme Court. She issued a fiery dissent accusing the majority of employing an unjustified exercise of power that will only serve to highlight the court's own impotence in the face of an America whose cries for equality resound. Justice Sotomayor has been outspoken in the past, saying that using other methods to ensure diversity won't work. It's not that I don't believe it works. I don't think the statistics show it works. In fact, when California banned affirmative action in 1996, UC Berkeley said black and Hispanic representation on their campus dropped by 50 percent. But Justice Clarence Thomas, one of two black justices on the high court, spoke in personal terms, too, saying he believes the Constitution is colorblind. While I am painfully aware of the social and economic ravages which have befallen my race and all who suffer discrimination, I hold out enduring hope that this country will live up to its principles that all men are created equal, 
are equal citizens and must be treated equally before the law. Justice Ketanji Brown Jackson, the first black woman on the court, pushed back in a separate dissent, bashing the majority opinion as exuding a let-them-eat-cake obliviousness and said, deeming race irrelevant in law does not make it so in life. The Supreme Court, however, saying that U.S. military service academies can continue to take race into consideration as a factor in admissions, essentially exempting those military schools from this ruling. Now, this was spelled out in a footnote in the majority opinion, but Justice Ketanji Brown Jackson calling this out in a dissent, saying that the court is essentially prioritizing diversity in the bunker versus the boardroom. Jessica Schneider, CNN, Washington. Okay, let's bring in Richard Collenberg. He's a non-resident scholar at Georgetown University, and he was an expert witness for the student group involved in bringing the lawsuits against Harvard and UNC. Richard, thanks so much for being here. Tell us your reaction to this decision. Well, I, I think this is a win for working class students and poor students. Uh, and the reason I say that is right now, the system of using race and admissions uh, tends to benefit wealthy students of all races. So at Harvard, 71% of the students who are Black, Hispanic, uh, and Native American come from the top socioeconomic fifth of the population, of those populations. Overall, there are 15 times as many uh, wealthy students as low-income students at both Harvard and the University of North Carolina. What this decision will do is uh, make it harder for places like Harvard and UNC to basically purchase racial justice on the cheap. They'll instead, if they want racial diversity, which I think they do, will have to recruit and uh, admit and enroll working class students of all races, a disproportionate share of whom are uh, black and Hispanic. I mean, it's it's no accident, given our history of racial oppression in this country, that black and Hispanic uh, students are disproportionately low income and have low wealth, live in high poverty neighborhoods, and they will disproportionately benefit from a new system of class-based affirmative action. I, I'm, I'm interested in those numbers that you're citing because there are, um, I thought, more poor whites in the U.S., than poor blacks. So how will it advantage low-income black students more? Well, it really depends on how you define socioeconomic disadvantage. So you're right. There are more poor whites uh, by income level than, uh, than there are poor blacks or poor Hispanics. However, uh, what that misses is the fact that when you look at students of the same income, Black students tend to live in much higher poverty neighborhoods than uh, low-income whites. Uh, there's also a huge wealth gap that uh, exists in America. Again, it's, a, it's related to the segregation and slavery and, and the history of redlining in this country. And so even if you look at students of the same income level, uh, Black and Hispanic students have uh, come from families with lower uh, levels of wealth or you know, net worth. And so if you count those additional factors in addition to income, then that's when you see greater levels of, of racial diversity. It's the fair thing to do. We should count wealth and we should count uh, neighborhood because those predict opportunity in America. And uh, and when you when you look at those factors, that's when you really see 
a racial dividend, if you will, from uh, class-based affirmative action. So President Biden spoke out against the court's decision today, calling for a new way of assessing applicants. So here he is. What I propose for consideration is a new standard, where colleges take into account the adversity a student has overcome when selecting among qualified applicants. Let's be clear. Under this new standard, just as was true under the earlier standard, students first have to be qualified applicants. They need the GPA and test scores to meet the school's standards. Once that test is met, then adversity should be considered, including a student's lack of financial means, because we know too few students of low-income families, whether in big cities or rural communities, are getting an opportunity to go to college. Richard, hold your thought, because I also want to bring in Elliot Williams, who's here with me in studio, um, one of our legal experts. So what do you think about that argument that Richard has been making and that President Biden there touched on? You know, look, I think it's undeniable that uh, income and uh, sort of one's access to wealth uh, in earlier life has some impact on, on where the, where someone might go later on. Um Something we're not talking, there's a couple things we're not talking about in this discussion, which is number one, first generation students going to college, even setting aside the question of the family's wealth. Um, you, so much can be done to improve diversity on college campuses by bringing in first generation students whose parents didn't go to college in the first place. The other thing lost today, Allison, and this is really important, is what this means for gender, which is if you consider the fact that we can stipulate that colleges and universities are going to get less diverse on a racial level uh, in the coming year or two, or however long it is, uh, consider that I think it's two-thirds of the black students on college campuses now uh, are women. And if you're limiting the number of black students on campus, you're, you are, in effect, limiting or reducing the number of women on campus. And that is itself sort of an, an offshoot of all of this that I think is getting lost in the discussion of sort of the legality today. Richard, your thoughts on that? You know, I, I completely agree that first-generation college students deserve a, a, a break, and that, that's part of what uh, I've long advocated. I think it, uh, it's the fair thing to do and will disproportionately benefit Black and Hispanic students. Um, on, the, on the question of gender, I think that's an interesting point. Uh, if you do class-based affirmative action in, uh, in a robust way, in a fair way, then you shouldn't see declines in Black and Hispanic representation. I mean, there are, we, know, we, we know from many universities that uh, have had, uh, had to stop using race, usually because of a voter initiative, that when they design the programs intelligently, they can get racial diversity. So, uh, so therefore, I don't think we would see that, that decline in Black representation, particularly, again, if you look at wealth. I can't, uh, I can't emphasize that enough. That there's a huge wealth gap in this country uh, that reflects our history of racism. And that's got to become an important factor in, in college admissions. In the future. Yes. And Richard, on that point, I mean, is it your contention that legacy should be done away with, that that's a holdover that's no longer serving colleges? A absolutely. Back, back in 2010, I edited a book called Affirmative Action for the Rich about legacy preferences. And those preferences were were hard to justify back then. Today, they're, they're really hard to, uh, to square with, with a sense of fairness because for those preferences go to students who uh, have had all sorts of advantages in life. They're the least deserving of an extra break. And uh, we saw in some states where they eliminated the use of race, 
uh, at places like UC Berkeley and UCLA. They did soon after eliminate legacy preferences. And I hope we see that happen across the board. I think that universities are genuinely concerned about racial diversity. And so that's one of the pieces of low-hanging fruit, to eliminate legacy preferences for, for wealthy whites, and, and you'll create a fairer system, and, and you'll get more racial diversity. Yeah, Elliot, I mean, colleges, this does behoove colleges, having diversity on campus. Students want that. It helps the, the student body. So there is it... Is it possible they're just going to have to get more creative, or do you think that this is really going to cut into that goal? Oh, they have to get more creative if they wish to. Have, like, number one, they have to define what diversity means. Even when speaking about Asians, uh, we, we, there's been so much discussion about Asian Americans today. What do you even mean when you talk about Asian Americans? Talking about East Asians, South Asians, Southeast Asians, each of which have different experiences in this country, uh, different uh, ex- economic relationships, you know, all all of the above. So then the question opens up, as Justice Roberts said in his opinion, well, someone could still write in a college essay um, how their race had an impact on them growing up. Well, how does, what does that do? And that, number one, how do you make that effective and functioning in a way that doesn't open the university up to a, a flood of litigation? I'm glad you brought that up because it is, confu- I mean, I've, we've had other discussions on this program about how vague those instructions are. You can't consider race, but feel free to put it into your college essay because that's your lived experience. So you say that this could spawn a cottage industry of litigation. Like what? Oh, so here's a great example. So again, so imagine a kid puts in a college essay, my parents are from Senegal, I am black, I'm also a champion soccer player, and my dad happened to go to this university, right? So there's a number of factors that are going to affect them. And maybe they considered that student's race, right? So has the school violated the law by thinking about this person's race. To the cottage industry point on this, I do wonder if if you're a nonprofit that is opposed to the use of race in admissions, why aren't you suing every university uh, over the coming years to get their the, the records of uh, their admissions decisions to try to figure out how these essays or whatever uh, information, their zip codes or magazine subscriptions, whatever they're doing to try to f- figure out what people's race are, why are they not suing them? Um, and, and they absolutely could. I mean, cottage industry, it was my it was my term. It's a little bit cute, but it is. I mean, and why wouldn't it be? It would be I think the smart thing to do if this is how you are aligned uh, as, as an organization or a nonprofit. Thank you very much. Richard, thank you very much for your perspective. Really interesting to hear from you this evening. Well, thanks for having me. All right. Joining me now is University of Baltimore constitutional law professor Michael Higginbotham. OK, Michael. Uh, so if race is no longer supposed to be a factor, um, explain what's going to happen on college campuses. Well, uh, we're going to be in we're going to be in pretty big trouble uh, in terms of creating racial diversity. Uh, It's a difficult time that we're in. College campuses are going to have to adjust uh, because uh, there's three things that they're going to need to do. One, they're going to need to recommit uh, to uh, creating a diverse student body Uh, or if they hadn't committed before, they need to commit now. Second thing uh, they're going to need to do is to make sure that um, they take advantage of what Justice Roberts indicated uh, by hiring a lot more admissions directors and admissions workers to look at the essays very closely because students are going to be talking about race. They're going to be talking about how race has impacted their lives. And so they're going to have to have admissions directors looking at these essays very carefully 
to determine how race has impacted their lives. And then the third thing, and most importantly, they're going to need to be creative. They're going to need to come up with race-neutral approaches that the Supreme Court said is still permissible, race-neutral approaches that, in fact, help to create a diverse uh, student body. If they can do those three things, they may be able to offset this decision that clearly makes it more difficult for moderate-income people to have access to higher education, more difficult for um, brown and black students to have higher education, and more difficult for uh, those who have been left out uh, for first gen. So uh, it's a different time, and schools are going to have to react accordingly. Yeah, it sounds like a tall order. Um, So just, Professor, out of curiosity, what does this mean for historically black colleges and universities? If race is no longer a factor, how does that affect affect HBCUs? Well, as you mentioned, uh, it's a HBCU. The key aspect there is historically black. Most of our HBCUs are much more diverse than our majority schools these days. A lot of people don't realize that, but HBCUs are very, very diverse. In Maryland, our HBCUs are extremely diverse. So when you start thinking about how it's going to impact HBCUs and majority schools, perhaps more partnerships between these schools can in fact help the majority schools increase their diversity. And um, I don't think it's going to impact significantly on our HBCUs because they are already the most diverse institutions we have. That is really interesting, and not many people know that. So maybe uh, other schools will take a page from the HBCUs. Uh, Thank you very much, Professor. Really appreciate you being here tonight. Hey, it's my pleasure to join you. All right, coming up, an armed man with materials to make Molotov cocktails was arrested today in former President Obama's Washington neighborhood. So we have all the details for you next. A man was arrested today in former President Barack Obama's Washington neighborhood with multiple firearms and materials to make a Molotov cocktail. According to law enforcement, the suspect, Taylor Taranto, claimed on an Internet live stream that he had a detonator. Taranto also had an open warrant for his arrest related to the January 6th insurrection. Let's get right to CNN's senior law enforcement analyst, Andrew McCabe. He's the author of The Threat, How the FBI Protects America in the Age of Terror and Trump. So, Andy, this is scary, obviously. Do we know how law enforcement was able to zero in on this guy? Well, Allison, some of the reporting I've seen indicates that uh, the Secret Service in the area around the Obama's residence observed him uh, acting suspiciously or running through the neighborhood, things like that, and they uh, interacted with him, identified him, and ultimately determined that he is an outstanding warrant uh, for his activities uh, in the Capitol on January 6th. So I think the whole thing unfolded from there. They called in the Metropolitan Police Department bomb squad to review, uh, to do a protective sweep of uh, Mr. Taranto's vehicle, the van, and they found the items that you indicated. Do we know how close he got to the Obamas? Were they under any direct threat? So the MPD has said they don't believe that uh, the Obamas were ever in any danger. So that doesn't really give us a lot of details about how close he came to the residents. But, um, you know, some sharp-eyed uh, Secret Service agents really doing their jobs out there and keeping a very close watch over that area, which uh, is something that we should expect in this day and age when we are experiencing elevated threats, particularly on the domestic violent extremist front. 
and, and we really have been for quite a few years now, and certainly in the post-January 6th era. Yeah. Is it surprising to you that this guy was basically a fugitive from January 6th? Um, you know, it seemed as though they rounded up people pretty quickly after January 6th, but not him. Yeah, you know, it's a huge effort, Allison. They've over a thousand people charged now and close to that many have been arrested. Um, the the effort of identifying people obviously is what really initiates that charging. Um, you know, it brings you ultimately to getting somebody charged, but it's a real process to try to identify and locate these folks. I understand from the reporting that Mr. Taranto was uh, doesn't have a residence, lives out of his van, is pretty mobile, may have been here in the DC area for some time, but living out of his van, which makes him obviously a little bit, a little bit tougher to find for the folks that are responsible for his criminal case. Um, you know, they're doing a lot of work. A lot of people have been arrested and charged so far. So uh, he just seems to be one that they haven't hadn't gotten around to, unfortunately. Until now. Um, Andy, yeah. thank you. Thank you very much for all of the information. Great to see you. Thanks, Allison. Okay, just ahead, developments in the multiple Trump investigations. Trump insiders are speaking to special counsel investigators, and we have the new reporting for you. New details in the investigation into former President Trump's handling of classified documents. Sources say Trump aide Susie Wiles met with special counsel investigators multiple times and was asked about a classified map that Trump allegedly showed her. Tonight, we're also learning that a former Trump campaign official is cooperating with the special counsel's investigation into efforts to overturn the 2020 election. To talk about all this, I'm joined by CNN political analyst Coleman Hughes, Rolling Stone columnist Jay Michelson. We also have CNN political analyst Natasha Alford and CNN senior political commentator Scott Jennings. Great to see all of you tonight. Coleman, this is so intertwined now. It's not just people who worked in the White House or may have witnessed this. Now people on Trump's campaign are involved in the investigation and the special counsel is asking them. It's really quite a tangled web at this point. Very much a tangled web and, and getting worse and worse because as we heard in the, in the audio clip today, uh, you know, one of the defenses Trump wanted to make is, well, I wasn't really showing those classified documents, right? I, I was talking about them, but I wasn't necessarily showing them to her. And if you hear the audio clip, you hear him really rustling around for 10, 15 seconds and really seeming to be showing it to her, right? So it's just going from bad to worse for Trump from, from what we're learning. And by the way, this is a different incident. That is, so this one with this new map, the classified map, is from August or September. Different map, different, different golf map, club. Different map, different, different campaign. And that one that you're referring to, which is the yeah. audio that we've all heard that CNN obtained, are the rustling around of classified documents. So it's not just one thing that the uh, special prosecutor is looking into. It's two. This yeah. is literally like the House of Cards, right? I mean, there's all of these different pieces. The whole thing seems to be falling apart. You know, it's been said before that Trump kind of runs his inner circle in a kind of mafioso sort of way, you know, this kind of everybody's on loyalty and so forth. But that depends on omerta. That depends on shutting up and being quiet mm -hmm. and being able to enforce that with you know, violence or threats of violence, which Trump can't do. He doesn't have leverage anymore. He doesn't have power over these people anymore. And it's all crumbling. So, you know, it's interesting. There may be more indictments related possibly to Bedminster in addition to the Mar-a-Lago documents. We don't know, of course. And, you know, it's, we don't want to make too much. Obviously, when people are talking to investigators, we don't know what they said or what they didn't say. But nonetheless, it, it is really quite remarkable. I don't know if we can keep straight all of the different 
layers of the scandal. And that's an important point also, because, Natasha, at some point, do voters just glaze over? It's There's so many threads. There's so many different developments that it's hard, obviously, for any voter who has a job and family to keep track. And so do they just dismiss some of these things? Um, I think it could actually go in either direction, right? Um, you know, there's going to be, obviously, uh, Trump supporters who are with him, they're ride or die until the end. Um, but there are those folks who are in the middle who can be persuaded. And it gets a little bit difficult to make the argument that you are just a victim, uh, that you're just a victim of, uh, you know, being politically targeted. Uh, when they start to see photos like all of these, you know, classified boxes in your bathroom, uh, when they hear audio and they hear your tone of voice and it is not interpreted or filtered through the media uh, or anyone who they can, you know, allege has bias. I, I think the, the truth as it comes out really does have power. And uh, we've seen in recent polls that more Americans are showing support for the recent charges. Uh, many Americans say that, you know, they think that these charges are serious or somewhat serious. So when you start to to crack away at that support of those folks who can be persuaded, um, I, I actually think that people will start to feel like if there's smoke, there's fire. Scott, um, former Vice President uh, Mike Pence was asked about that audio that CNN obtained this week that um, shows Donald Trump discussing what he called secret classified documents. Here is how Mike Pence uh, responded. The allegations in the indictment against a former president are serious, but he does deserve his day in court. Yes. Uh, th this shouldn't be litigated no. uh, in, in the media. It should, be, it should be litigated in a court of law. The president's entitled to bring his defense. I, I want to let that process work out. Everybody's entitled to a presumption of innocence, so we'll, we'll stand on that presumption of innocence. Um, Scott, will we at some point start to hear some of his opponents use this to their political advantage? Well, if, if there's an advantage to be had, I mean, most of the polling of Republican voters indicates that they don't believe these charges or they think he shouldn't have been charged. Yet, heck, even Mike Pence on CNN in his town hall uh, before it all happened said that Donald Trump shouldn't be charged. So there actually may not be uh, an advantage to be had beyond just simply saying that, hey, you know, over time, if you've got a nominee who's been indicted two, three or four times uh, on multiple counts across multiple jurisdictions, maybe it's not the greatest political strategy for our party to nominate this person because there's going to be a whole bunch of people in this election who are what I would call double disapprovers. They don't really like Biden. They really don't like Trump. Uh, but the polling indicates right now they would probably lean Biden and they certainly lean to the Democrats uh, in the 2022 midterm because of all the things they know about and will learn about Donald Trump. So is there an advantage in it? I don't know. There ought to be, because if you're a Republican and you want to win back the White House, those double disapprovers are, are who you ought to be thinking about. And uh, the idea that they a whole bunch of people that don't like Joe Biden's policies may vote, vote against you as a Republican uh, just because of all the mountain of uh, crap that Donald Trump has heaped upon himself. Friends, stick around because just ahead we do have more on the Supreme Court decision that is ending affirmative action in college admissions. Veteran South Carolina Democratic Congressman James Clyburn is here with his reaction next. President Biden denouncing the Supreme Court's decision to end affirmative action in college admissions, accusing the high court of walking away from decades of precedent. We cannot let this decision be the last word. I want to emphasize, we cannot let this decision be the last word. While the court can render a decision, 
It cannot change what America stands for. Let's bring in Democratic Congressman James Clyburn of South Carolina for his thoughts. Congressman, thank you so much for being here. What's your reaction to the Supreme Court ruling? I was very, very disappointed. Thank you so much for having me. You know, I think that what we have to really get serious about is what do we do uh, to repair the faults that exist in our system? And we know those faults are there. And we know what brought those faults about. I often think about those soldiers coming back from World War II, the Tuskegee Airmen. We glorified them with movies, but yet we denied them the GI Bill of Rights uh, when so many white soldiers got the, the Bill of Rights. I, uh, along with Seth uh, Moulton, we've introduced legislation to deal with that. And so that's called affirmative action. What's wrong with taking affirmative steps in order to correct problems that exist in our society. When I went to work in the governor's office back in 1971, it was affirmative action. I'm not ashamed of it. I believe I was deserving of being there, but laws in South Carolina kept my parents and their parents from achieving that. And so if the governor decides to take affirmative action to bring me into the process, I don't understand Clarence Thomas being ashamed of that. He doesn't honor his mother and father when he says things like that. But let's talk about that, because, of course, we all understand the goal of affirmative action admissions was to try to help level this very unequal playing field. But black student enrollment has been steadily falling over the past decade, even before this. So do you think that affirmative action in colleges has worked the way it was intended? Oh, it did for a long, long time. In recent years, it has not been working because the Supreme Court has been sort of chipping away at it for a long time. They've just uh, completed uh, the task with this ruling. But we know what happened in California seven years ago uh, when they dropped down to almost 1% uh, with black enrollment in colleges and universities because they quit doing affirmative action. The same thing happened up at the um, uh, University of Michigan. This time, it's the University of North Carolina and Harvard and they will complete the task uh, in other areas as well. Elections have consequences. We messed around and allowed 45 to get elected, and he put three people on the Supreme Court, one of them, I think, illegitimately, and all of us know that, and those three people just delivered uh, what uh, he expected them to deliver. Mm. Um, Congressman, one argument is that if the goal is to create a more level playing field, that needs to start in kindergarten not college. And so really the attention should be in trying to uh, increase funding for, you know, public K through 12 schools um, that are majority black rather than having the colleges make up for all of this. Well, we do. That's elementary secondary education act. That's what we got back uh, with Lyndon Johnson with the Great Society programs. They were against that. That's what his stuff was all about. They were against that. You know, all of these things that were brought on were for this purpose. And they are still in law, we are underfunding, and we're doing the kinds of things that are necessary to try to get rid of them. So we can do both. There is no question. When you've got young people graduating from high school, straight A's, many of them go through college, straight A's, and still can't get into a professional school because of their skin color and sometimes their gender. We know 
the media to do better. Well, Congressman James Clyburn, thank you very much for sharing your feelings and insights with us tonight. Great to see you. Thank you for having me. Up next, the panel is back with their thoughts on the impact of the Supreme Court's decision to end affirmative action in college admissions. President Biden speaking out against today's decision by the Supreme Court to end affirmative action. I think they may do too much harm, um, but uh, um, I think if we start the process of trying to expand the court, we're going to politicize it maybe forever in a way that is not healthy. That you can't get back. That you can't get back. Um, And I think, look, I think maybe it's just the optimist in me. I think that some of the court are beginning to realize their legitimacy is being questioned in ways that hadn't been questioned in the past. My panel is back with me. Natasha, let's talk about affirmative action and what was decided today, because it seems the Supreme Court may be reflecting the feelings of many Americans. So the latest polling from Pew Research shows that the majority of U.S. adults disapprove of colleges considering race and ethnicity in admissions. And if you look at it by race, which they also asked, the majority of Asian and white Americans disapprove of affirmative action, but 29% of blacks also, and 39% of Hispanics disapprove. So what do you think is going on there? Well, I think the polling, um, it depends on how you ask the question, right? When you talk about the phrase affirmative action and what's associated with it, or when you get specific about who it's supposed to benefit, uh, polls actually have different um, different outcomes. And I also think that it, it differs by generation, right? Um, I think that you're gonna see that difference in the numbers with uh, black Americans in particular because affirmative action means something different to us. And it's really frustrating to me when we talk about this and we do not acknowledge of the origins of of how this happened, right? America broke its promises time and time again to black Americans. We wouldn't need affirmative action if America had delivered on 40 acres and a mule, if it didn't meet emancipation with Jim Crow, if it didn't double down on trying to oppress black Americans at every single turn, when black Americans, we just wanted the opportunity to participate as citizens and enjoy the full protection under the law that the 14th Amendment was supposed to give us. And so a poll may reflect a lack of understanding, a lack of empathy, which I think we see across the board uh, when we look at all of these attacks on diversity and equity. There is a backlash that comes with progress. And so uh, the court may reflect, you know, there may be certain demographics that agree uh, with the court's decision today, Mm -hmm. but that doesn't mean that it's morally right. And it doesn't mean that it's a reflection of the values that America says it it truly stands for. Coleman, how do you see it? The way I see it, I think people need a reality check about affirmative action. Okay, this is not a policy that addresses poverty. This is not a policy that addresses disadvantage. This policy, according to Princeton sociologist Thomas Espenshade, affects 1%, 1% of black and Hispanic 18-year-olds every year. We're talking about a policy for elites. This is not an anti-poverty policy, okay? Affirmative action has been banned in nine different states going back to 1996, and those states have still been 
absolutely fine places to go to college as a black or Hispanic student. Yeah, so the numbers did drop. When, it, when this happened in California, that, the next year, the numbers plummeted for black students. But the graduation rates went up. Well, and they had to do a lot of creative things. It, it was, a, it was um, then beholden upon UCLA to have to do, invest money and do all sorts of creative things to get more black students back. But look, you know, going being a black person in any of these states, it's been okay. I, I don't think the right way to address racial inequality is to punish Asian American students and in in that way, in some roundabout way, be paying black people back back for the past. Martin Luther King talked about this in his 1964 book. He said, "Yes, we have to repay the legacy of slavery. The way to do that is with class-based anti-poverty programs." And I agree with that. Jay. You know, I think, I think Coleman and I disagree a little bit on this particular policy, but where I see a strong agreement is that those who supported affirmative action have lost a certain kind of ethical discussion in this country. And I think that's a shame. You know, there's a primary American value about fairness. And on a surface level, this looks unfair. And I think we've done, those of us who supported affirmative action uh, before it was taken out in this case, and this is not just about the universities, obviously, this will ripple out into other areas as well, did not make the case uh, that this is also about fairness and is about remedy. And that was because it became about diversity and it muddied the waters. And well, what was the purpose of affirmative action? Some people said it was this and some people said there's that. And the court itself couldn't decide. In uh, Chief Justice Roberts's opinion today, he pointed out that there was never a single clear rationale, at least not for the last 35 years, on the Supreme Court level as to what affirmative action was even supposed to do. And the dissent and and the, the opinion and also Justice Thomas's concurrence all had different rationales for what this policy was even supposed to be about. That, to me, reflects a real failure to define what was at stake in terms of justice around this policy. Scott, how do you see it? Well, I agree with what Coleman said about Asian Americans. What I find remarkable, this case was specifically about the discrimination against Asian Americans. And there are a whole bunch of people out there today, uh, politicians and other uh, you know, political leaders, uh, people who hold high office, uh, blatantly saying that Asians need to be discriminated against in order to make something else right. And I just find that to be completely abhorrent. The politics of this are very clear. Every national poll, every major national poll I've ever seen that you reported on tonight, Allison, shows that Americans do not want this. They don't like it. They think it's fundamentally unfair. And so for a court that's often, you know, has its legitimacy questioned, Uh, This was the most uncontroversial decision of the term. It is the most lopsided decision of the term if you just look at public opinion. So I think they got it right by the law, and I think they also got it right by the old famous Kentucky Supreme Court Justice John Marshall Harlan, who said in the famous dissent in Plessy, our Constitution is colorblind. And thanks to Clarence Thomas and the court today, they finally lived up to that. So I'm glad for the decision, and every conservative I know is as well. I know you all have very different perspectives and opinions on on that, uh, Natasha. Um, I I get it. With Harvard on this, yeah, um, and we should say that Harvard, the uh, Asian American admissions rate has gone up in the past ten years. Uh, but thank you all very much. Great to talk to you. We'll be right back. All too often, the people working to help improve the lives of others do not receive the recognition they deserve. CNN Heroes wants to share their stories with the world and help them continue doing the special work. So this week, Anderson Cooper has some tips to help you help them. And maybe your hero will become the next CNN Hero of the Year. Since 2007, CNN Heroes has honored hundreds of everyday people making the world a better place. 
We shine a light on their causes and help them raise funds for their life-changing work, all while inspiring people with their incredible stories. But the first step in the CNN Heroes journey is a nomination, and that's where you come in. It only takes a few minutes, and you can do it right now at CNNHeroes.com. Just think about what makes this person special and tell us about them in a paragraph or two. We want to know about their impact and what makes their work unique. You don't need to know your nominee personally. They could just be someone you admire from afar, and they can be from almost anywhere in the world. This is your opportunity to help that amazing person you know reach more people and change more lives and maybe even become the next CNN Hero of the Year. You can find everything you need to know to nominate your hero right now at CNNHeroes.com. Nominations close July 31st. Thanks so much for watching CNN Tonight. Our coverage continues now. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country. Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.